0: Welcome to the Simple Church Podcast, where we're committed to helping you know God, find freedom, discover your purpose, and make a difference. Let's get to today's message. All right, welcome to Simple Church. Well, hey, so uh, we're, we're in this series, we're talking about the things Jesus never said because it's important that we know what he did say, right? It's important that we, that we know our Bibles, it's important that we get into our scripture on our own, not just on Sundays, and we know what the Bible says. Whether it's just reading a verse of the day, it will make an impact in your life, guys. It's important. Now, can I just let some of you off the hook? Because I had lots of conversations around reading scripture, and some people are like, man, I don't know that I can memorize Like the references and people get hung up on the references and because they're no good at remembering the references, which is like, you know, Luke chapter one, verse 14 or whatever that might be. The references, because they can't get their brain around that. They feel like less than and they feel like a little bit of a failure and they're like, well, I'm just never going to memorize scripture. Let me tell you something. David did not say your biblical references have I hid in my heart. He didn't say that. He said, your word have I hidden in my heart. Can I just encourage you that reading God's word and just remembering the words, even if you're not good at remembering where you read it in your Bible, is the point. Hide his word. Remember what he said. Remember what he said about you. Remember what he said about life. Apply it to your lives. Don't get hung up on the references thing. Because Can I tell you the truth? I'm terrible at it too. See, oh, but you're a pastor, uh-huh. Yep. For the most part, I can tell you where I read it in my paper-printed Bible, but I'm terrible at those references. Some of you are like, I'm leaving this church. All right, I understand. I understand. But I struggle too, and so I just wanted to offer you a little bit of freedom. That's not in my notes. That was just free for you guys today, alright? So here you go. Get in your Bibles. Know God's word, because if you don't, what's going to happen is that the world's culture is going to tell you what the Bible says. You can get on any social media. You can get on TikTok and all these places, and there are tons of people telling you what your Bible says. And they're wrong. It's false doctrine. It's not true. Change one word in some of those statements, and it changes the meaning of everything. And if you don't know, you won't know the difference. It is not not good that we let the world or even church tradition tell us what the Bible says. I encouraged you last week. I know I'm putting this stuff up on the screen, but take notes and this week go home and look them up and see if the verses that I'm reading to you actually say what they say. I'm thankful for the trust, but also read your Bible. Know what it says. Because if you don't, what will happen to you? And here's the thing. I'm not asking you to do something hard. I'm asking you to do something that will set you free. Because, see, as a Christ follower, if you believe false doctrine, it means that it will impact your life in a negative way. False doctrine leads to oppression of a people group, individuals. It leads to shame. And ultimately, let me tell you what else false doctrine leads you to is sin. Sin is just missing the mark of God's best for your life. And so we got to know what it says. Now, if you're just beginning your spiritual journey, I'm not expecting you to know everything all at once. But just get into your Bible, submit yourself to God's word, and say, I'm going to read this thing. And then I'm going to let it read me, and I'm going to let it tell me how to live my life. As Christ followers, that's what we're supposed to do. In this series, what we're doing specifically is not just looking at what God said. We're looking at the red letters. Because in your Bible, if you have a printed one, oftentimes the things that God's son, Jesus, what he said are the red letters. So we're looking at specifically, what are the things that Jesus actually said? Because when you start looking at the things Jesus said, you're going to find out that a lot of them seem upside down and illogical. I agree. Some of them just don't seem to make sense. They don't line up with worldly wisdom, but they're not supposed to. The things Jesus said are otherworldly. They are supernatural, and therefore they are powerful and they are life-changing. We need to know what Jesus said and to fully embrace that power to fully embrace that opportunity for life change. It's important to know what he said, but it's also important to know what he didn't say. It's important to know what you might say, what I might say, what the world is saying, but it's important to know what he didn't say. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about happiness. and I'm going to talk to you about what Jesus didn't say about happiness. Just by show of hands, everybody participating. It's a group thing, okay? Group therapy all together now. If you want to be happy, throw your hand up. If you look around, look around, look around, the people with their hands down, they're liars. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, we, we, we all want to be happy, don't we? Every single one of us, we want to be happy. Now, here's what Jesus didn't say about happiness. Go into all the world and preach whatever makes people happy. Didn't say that. In fact, what Jesus taught, what he preached, was not always very popular. He never said Whoever wants to be my disciple must affirm themselves, avoid the cross, and follow their own hearts. Stinking Steve. (laughs) He didn't say, ask and it will be given to you because God is your sky sugar daddy. A lot of us believe this one though. We believe it. We believe our happiness and our, our spiritual happiness, our relationship with God, is only happy when He's giving us everything that we want. When we show up at that vending machine and we pump in our prayers and our worship and go, okay, I'm going to have me some A11. And because I did this, this is transactional relationship, you got to give me what I want. Otherwise, I won't be happy. I want it now. That's just, that's just not who God is. He's not your sky sugar daddy. He's not a cosmic vending machine. It's not him. Jesus didn't say this, but I'll tell you who did. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. That was Cheryl Crow. <laughs> Jesus didn't say those things. So today, through this lens, we're going to look at one particular story. It's one of my favorite stories because I think it really puts everything That Jesus was sent here to do into perspective and puts it on the stage. But it's one story. It's found in John chapter 8. I believe it'll change your life if you allow it. And at the end of the story, I'm going to share with you what Jesus didn't say. And then I'll share with you what he did say. So here we go. John chapter 8 is where we're going to be. By the way, the reference points are these little dot dots right here. Just in case you didn't know, that's the stuff you don't have to memorize. But anyway, let me get back to the message here. It says, uh, now verse 1 talks about Jesus being on the Mount of Olives, which my wife and I were just there, and we stood on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is the place where he ascended into heaven after he had finished his ministry, crucified, resurrected from the dead, and it's the place that he will return. It's so crazy. People uh, in Israel want to be the first ones to resurrect when he comes back, and they pay about $50,000 to be buried in a plot right there on the Mount of Olives because they think they'll be the first ones to wake up when he comes back. It's just crazy to see it all. $50,000. It's just this little thing. Anyway, he's on the Mount of Olives, and it says, at dawn, he, Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. This is the place. Go ahead and show us. This is the place right here. This is called the teaching steps. This is in the courts at Israel. This My wife is right there at the front. Uh, and she is currently leading uh, like a, a devotion there that morning these are the steps and I show you the steps because I want you to see that what I'm getting ready to tell you was a very public thing there was nothing private about it so as you envision what happened here on these steps these steps were the teaching steps of the temple court that they're literally talking about in this moment verse 3 says the teachers of the law and the pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now I have to stop, pause. I have some questions. I don't know if you read stories like this and you have questions, but I have questions. First of all, I want to know where was the man? In a culture that oppresses women and lets the man off the hook for his behaviors, where was the man? Because it last I checked, <clears throat> I don't mean to make it awkward, but it takes two to tango. Where's the guy? And the second thing I want to know is, how did you catch them exactly? <laughs> Was this a sting operation? Did you set her up, or were you just peeping through windows like a... Well, you know, how did you catch them? I want to know. Also, I need you to understand that caught in the act means that it's very likely that the woman was thrown in, onto these stairs in front of a crowd of people that Jesus was teaching. Now surrounded by religious leaders and the Pharisees, a group, an elite sect of the the rabbis, she was thrown onto those steps, likely naked or barely dressed. As she was caught in the throes of passion, she was caught in the act of adultery. At best, she might have had the mind to grab the sheet and drag it with her as she was thrown into public to be humiliated and shamed for her acts. Truth is, they didn't care about the woman. They were there to trip up Jesus, which is what the next verse says, it says they start speaking to. And they said, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, not with that wacky tobacco. We're talking about like actually picking up some rocks and lobbing them at somebody's head till they're dead. Stone them. Now, what do you say? And they were using this question as a, as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So Jesus is being put here seemingly in a no-win situation. They want to tempt him, and it's complicated, because the law of Moses did say that anybody that committed adultery was to be taken outside of the city, and they were to be stoned, and they've caught her, so she's guilty, and they're bringing her in front of Jesus, because Jesus has got this reputation for love, and for grace, and if Jesus says, now she's guilty, let's kill her, stone her, Well, then Jesus is in a situation where that that public reputation would be diminished, and that was their goal. Or if Jesus said, nah, it's no big deal, then he's essentially breaking the law of Moses. He's condoning adultery. So they're trying to trip him up. So if Jesus agreed he would lose his reputation no matter which way, agreed or went against, thankfully, these were not the only two options he had. Thankfully, Jesus does what Jesus does. And I love it. He does it so beautifully here. Verse 6, it says, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his fingers. So they're talking to him. They bring this situation. This girl has been caught in adultery. She's standing naked in front of a crowd of people and the, and the religious leaders who caught her, who are therefore required to stone her. Her life is being threatened, and Jesus drops on the ground and starts drawing. Huh. Of the things that you could say you saw coming, that probably wasn't one of them. If you've ever pleaded your case to a police officer because they caught you speeding, has any of them ever just dropped to the ground and started drawing? It's not the response you expect. But Jesus starts drawing on the ground. And theologians for years have wondered, what did he write? What did he do? Later manuscripts say that what he was writing was the sins of all of her accusers. They, and they, they, they believe he was on the ground, and he wrote, "Stinking Steve, ha, I know your browser history, Steve. Jerky James, here's what you said about your boss behind his back. Petty Paul, I know what you did last summer. These are the characters in my drama today. But here's why people, they believe that that's what Jesus was doing. And it's, it's not affirmed. It's just believed. Because the Greek words, which this is all originally written in Greek that are translated into English. The Greek words that are, are used for some to write something down is the word graphene. But the word that was actually used is the word catagraphene. Catagraphene means to write down something against someone. And so this is why they believe that he was writing out their sins. That he was writing out his record against them. Now, I don't think that's why Jesus was doing it. Some of you have heard me say this before, because I don't see Jesus in any other environment where he is calling out the specific sins of a person, humiliating them and shaming them the way they were doing this woman. I think what Jesus was doing was just doodling on the ground. But he was doing this because he refused to shame the woman by looking on her nakedness. He refused to look at. And let me tell you something, church. I think we need to be a church that refuses to shame people. My Bible tells me that's the truth. Because Galatians 6, how are you supposed to carry somebody's burdens if you're going to shame them for the burden that they have? How are you going to do what Jude tells you to do is to rush into the fire and rescue people if you're going to shame them for the sin that they've entangled themselves with? How in the world are you going to do Colossians 3, which tells you to make room for people's faults? Get ready. They're going to sin against you. These are just three references and evidences, but I see it repeated time and time again in our Bibles that we should be the first place that people can turn to, and we should be people of grace. Yes, we need to tell them truth, and you'll see that in Jesus, but we need to be people that refuse shame culture. I thought I'd get a better amen than that, and that's all right. Y'all will listen to it back later and go and shout in your cars, I'm sure. Thank you. We have to refuse it. How dare we look down our noses at anyone when our sins are just as equally bad. You may not be caught in that sin now, but that doesn't mean you weren't. And it doesn't mean the sin you're caught up in now isn't worse. Okay, let me get out of your space a little bit. Back out. I don't think Jesus was, was listing their names. I think he was refusing shame culture, and that feels more like Jesus to me. Verse goes on in verse 7, but those are, to be clear, that's all speculation. We don't have any firm evidence either way. There's just two sides of the story. Verse 7, when they kept on questioning him, so Jesus is doodling, and they keep on asking him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. That seems like a really harsh thing to say, but it's very clear. It's like, oh, so if, you've got, if you, you haven't sinned, then you can throw the stone. But let me tell you what that word actually means. In the Greek, it doesn't mean without sin. It means let him who has never even wanted to sin. Uh Uh-oh. Because see, there's a whole lot of things that I didn't do that I've wanted to do, and that was just this morning. Come on, somebody, be real with me. You can't get into traffic anywhere in this city. On a Sunday morning, no less. And not have things that you wanted to do and or wanted to say, but you did not. (laughs) Just saying. It's not just without sin. It's not without even wanting to be in sin. Jesus is calling out something important here in this crowd, and it's hypocrisy. He's calling out because it's easy to see the sins of others and overlook our own. Especially the sins that we consider to be uh, the worst sins. You You know what those worst sins are what we consider to be societally worse than our little gossips and white lies we tell. There's stuff. they are like, oh, it's worse. But you know what? The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says all sins are equal here. That, that they're not all equal in their impact and consequence, but to God, every sin is just sin. And all of it serves to separate us from him. All sins are equal. And so Jesus says to him, whoever is out without wanting to ever sin, you can throw stones. Verse 8, he said, again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. So he's back to doodling, letting these guys just kind of noodle that all out. And at this, those who heard, this is why I don't think he was writing anything. It's because of what they heard, not what they saw on the ground. Those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. So all all her accusers are gone. The crowd that he was teaching is still looking on with the woman still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She says, No, sir. He said, Then neither do I condemn you. Now watch this. Here's what Jesus didn't say. He did not say, Go and do whatever makes you happy. He did not say, Go now and follow your heart. He did not say, Well, it doesn't matter what you do. You do you, boo-boo. Go. These are the things Jesus did not say. What he said was, this is Jesus declared, this is a declaration. This is a statement. It requires action. Go now. He said. He said, "Go now. Go when? Now. Yeah. Go now. What does now mean? Now. It means right now. It means get up. Go now. Don't wait till later. Don't don't check your Instagram feed. Don't don't read that text message. No no, 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 no. Go. Go when? Now. Yeah. Go now. Go now." and leave your life of sin. Some people are like, oh, that's just so mean. No. No, it's not. There's a sense of urgency that Jesus has. He's telling her, go now. Don't wait till you feel like it. Don't wait till you have approval from your friends. Don't wait. Go now. Leave your life of sin. Be different. Be free. This is what he's calling her to. It's like urging someone that after you've Released their shackles and opened up the prison door. Get out, go, run, go. Jesus shows up on the scene and he offers grace and truth, but he does that only after he's dismissed the crowd. He's not condemning her. Go, don't end up here again. Leave your life of sin. There's no more shame. You're not a hostage anymore. So why do we, like the woman, give in to temptation? Why do we wind up sinning? Well, the answer is pretty simple, guys. Sin's fun. If anybody agrees with that, just shoot your hand up. Sin is fun. Mine's up. But, and if your hand isn't up, you're not doing it right. <laughs> if sin isn't fun to you, you're not doing it right. Can I get a better amen? Amen. Like, I'm not sure I can amen that. This is really confusing. No, no. The Bible says in Hebrews 11:25, sin is fun for a season. For a season. It's good time. And if you don't agree, maybe it's because you're lying right now, and that makes you a sinner too. So, <laughs> Here's what the thing is about sin. Sin promises satisfaction at the cost of disobedience to God and eventual pain to you. I'm going to say it again. Sin promises you satisfaction at the cost of disobedience to God and eventual pain to you. So how did the woman get where she was at? How did she get caught in adultery? Let's try to get into the mindset for a moment. Let's just assume that she's not a terrible person. Let's assume that, yep, what she did was pretty terrible and it impacts a lot of people. Yep, that was pretty bad. But we're not going to shame her and say because she did a bad thing, she's a bad person. So let's back it up a little bit and go, all right. How did you get into this situation? How did you find yourself there? Because I don't think she woke up one day and was like, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to wreck my life. I'm going to ruin everything that's good about it. I'm going to risk my home, risk my job, risk my community and my friends, and I'm going to wreck this person's marriage that I'm going to sleep with. I don't think anybody wakes up and decides that, and I don't think that she decided that easy, or that, that either. I think that what she decided was, A little more innocent and very gradual. It could go down something like this. Maybe she's in a marriage with a man. And that marriage was initially very filled with passion. Hot pursuit of one another. But sometime, somewhere along the way after they got married, he stopped pursuing her. Became very passionless. And they stopped dating. He stopped asking her out. Stopped being attentive to her. Took her for granted. Or maybe... He became abusive in some ways, whether that's verbally abusive, whatever that looks like. And so the marriage isn't great. And someday she goes to her job. And at the office, there's a nice guy. And he's attentive to her. And he talks to her, tells her good job, likes the ideas she has and what she brings to the table. Notices her new haircut and color that her husband didn't notice. And all of a sudden, something that was innocent, nothing wrong with it, it's kind of turned into a little something. She finds herself thinking about it. She finds herself looking forward to seeing him and talking to him. And eventually what winds up happening is that one night he stays late and she does too. She's going to help him work on something. And while they're working on something, he opens up about his struggles with his marriage. And, and of course, they connect on a deeper level. Eventually, he tells her through more conversation about it, more time together. I think I may have made a mistake. I think maybe I wished I'd married somebody like you. Time goes by. And at work one day, he passes by her and accidentally brushes her arm. Or was it an accident? She begins to spiral and begins to think. Was that intentional? She begins to realize I'm feeling a certain way about this guy my emotions are out of control and they're wrong but it feels so right she begins to tell herself he's what's missing he's what would make me happy she talks to her best friend about it and her best friend is like hey follow your heart and step by seemingly insignificant step she moves towards this adulterous relationship and eventually as a result finds herself barely dressed, publicly humiliated, and shamed. How'd she get there? Because sin promises satisfaction at the cost of disobedience to God and eventual pain to you. That's how she got there. So why do some of us, like the woman caught in adultery, why do we end up in some of the places we end up today? Well, I think one of the main issues is in our culture, there's this idea called Uh, relativistic beliefs or relativism. Maybe you've heard of it. It's it's the idea that there is no real truth. There's just truth that's relative to you. That, well, your truth isn't my truth. My truth is true for me, and whatever your truth is, it can be true for you. But when there is nothing that is truth, there is no foundation to stand on, that makes everything all wibbly-wobbly all over the place. There's no absolute truth. In other words, it comes down to when, when we're talking about the idea of happiness, it's whatever makes you happy is your truth. Whatever makes you happy, do that. And here's the main issue with that. Without a belief in absolute truth, truth is defined by whatever makes me happy. And when the bottom line is my happiness, happiness becomes the standard by which I judge my actions. That's a problem. If it makes me happy, it can't be that bad. And if I'm not happy, that means that what I'm doing is wrong, that I need to be happy. And some of the things that we choose to do, we go, well, I know it's wrong, but I've, it's societally, nobody likes it, but it makes me happy, so and it feels right. Well, what's the root cause of this? What, what is the problem that we're dealing with? The problem is that so many people think happiness and what God has for you, which, by the way, is called holiness, are mutually exclusive. They think they're two different things, that you cannot be holy and be happy at the same time. They think they're at odds, and that's just not true. It's not true that you have to choose one or the other, that you choose holiness, and that you're destined for this miserable existence. That's just not true. I grew up in a holiness church uh, that that believed that, and I'm going to tell you something. I believed that in order to be holy, it mattered what I looked like, and that I needed to wear long pants, no facial fur. The girls had to wear long dresses and couldn't cut their hair or wear makeup. I wasn't allowed to have a TV in my house or go to the movies or a bowling alley, and you certainly couldn't have sex because sex would lead to dancing. That's not allowed. (laughs) The only music you were allowed to listen to was Carmen, which I didn't hate that. I love Carmen. Any any Carmen fans out there? Okay, there's a few of you. Yeah, Carmen. God rest his soul. (laughs) It's true. It's true. There was nothing. Was no fun allowed. and I was like, yes, but we are holy. Holiness and happiness are not mutually exclusive, guys. And I, I don't think there's, by the way, I just want to say that, that I don't, there was none of that that was rooted in Scripture, by the way. So I abandoned that a long time ago. That's another message for another time, and I just preached a few weeks ago. So anyway. But we look at the lives of some Christians, and we go, oh, to follow Jesus. To be holy, I have to be miserable. Holiness is just about being set apart, guys, set apart for God's plan and his purpose for your life. That's what holiness means. It's a set-apartness. Come out from among them, be separate. God isn't watching, though, to make sure that his kids are holy and miserable, that they never get to enjoy life or are happy. No, we have a loving, heavenly father. Maybe this is your first time ever hearing that about God. But that is absolutely true. Jesus said this about our daddy who art in heaven. He said, if you then, Matthew 7, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids. So pause. He's talking to you. As parents, we're all sinful people. We all have wickedness in our hearts. And of us, if we know how to give good gifts to our kids, how much more so, he says, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? He's a good God. He's not angry at you. He has good things for you. If you find yourselves at odds with holiness and happiness, I'm going to tell you that it's because you're looking for happiness in the wrong places. Max Lucado, he's a brilliant author, tells a story about a fish that is brought out of the proper environment and put on a beach. Anybody ever seen a fish on a beach before? Do you know what a fish out of water is doing? Dying. They are flailing, flopping around, trying to get back into the proper environment so that they can <sighs> take the breath that was meant for them. But a fish on the beach is flopping. And we look at the, the fish on the beach and we go, "I know what? This fish, it needs something. It needs a pile of cash." Let's give the fish on a beach a pile of cash. Is the fish happy? No. no. Come on, everybody play along. Is the fish happy with a pile of cash? No. no. What about we throw a party for the fish? We got Barracuda by heart playing in the background, or maybe it's a baby shark kind of day. I don't know. Oh, that just upsets some people, mainly over here. I don't know what's happening, but oh. Is the fish or any of you happy? No. no. What about we, we give it a beach chair and some sunglasses? Maybe a Mai Tai, a margarita. Maybe we, maybe we give it a pita colada. Is the fish happy? No. What if we give it a magazine, you know, a playfish? Check out that bass. Is there a phone number we can call to report this guy? We've just got (laughs) to. Is the fish happy? No. The fish isn't happy. What if we give the fish an Instagram account with a million followers and a new iPhone so we can take pictures of itself flopping on the beach? Is the fish happy? No. No. What about some fashionable clothes? We're talking Prada from head to tail. Come on. Is the fish happy? This is never going to be happy on the beach. You know why? Because it wasn't designed for life on the beach. And I know that you can relate because everything I just described to give the fish is what we try to fill our lives with in order to be happy. Those things were not intended to make us happy. There's nothing on this earth that was intended to make us happy. Everything that we are putting into our lives to feel the happiness is making it so that we can no longer breathe. I'll get it. Hello? So, so it's all good. It's all good. If you find yourself unhappy, I want to challenge you. It's because you are living for the things of this world. So you need to recognize this simple truth. You, my friends, were not made for this world. What you were made for, you were created by God for God. You were created to live for eternal things. You were created, meant to be holy, set apart for his plan and his purposes, which, by the way, are all beautiful things for you when you embrace them. There's no new car, no boat, no boyfriend, vacation, the amount of likes on your social media, the amount of money in your bank account, how you do your hair, what your body looks like. No pair of shoes will ever give you the joy your heart craves it'll just never happen there's nothing wrong with those things but you'll never find happiness in them you'll never find happiness in doing what feels good either pleasure man you can you can have some pleasure and there's pleasure in sin but it's only pleasurable for a season it is fleeting that means the pleasure you're experiencing will leave you and you'll just be left with the mess that your sin caused because sin will never deliver. Sin promises satisfaction at the cost of disobedience to God and eventual pain to you. So here's the truth we've got to understand. Holiness isn't mutually exclusive of happiness. Holiness is the pathway to true happiness and joy. They're connected. Living a life set apart for God, living out his purpose for your life, is the path to happiness. King David, he said this so beautifully in the psalm in chapter 16. He said, you will make known to me the path of life. Man, I want to know the path of life. I want to not just know it. I want to walk on it. I want to experience it. He said, in your presence is fullness of joy. He's where the joy is, guys. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Not just temporary. Nothing fleeting. Forever. Forever. He has that for us. He has the path of life. He has joy. And he has pleasure forever. Come on, somebody. I want some of that. No, I want some of that. I want all that. I want all that. There is eternal pleasure to be had. And this is why the woman who was caught in the most shame-filled moment of her life, this is why Jesus didn't say, I'm embarrassed by your behavior. After all I've done for you, I can't believe you did that to me. He didn't shame her, not any further. He released her from that prison cell, thereby commuting her sentence so that she could be free. He did not say to her, go and be happy. He said, go now, leave your life of sin. Because what he had for her was better, and it was lasting and not fleeting, like the moment she was experiencing just before so what do you do what do you do when you know that something you're doing is wrong you know what's right but you keep on doing the wrong thing maybe you're like me in my relationship with Jesus I'd began some sins in my life that I just couldn't get away from I felt trapped I felt trapped because the sins that I was participating in they looked good they felt good but in the end, they snared me, and they didn't deliver what they promised. One of those things in my life, and I only talk about this one a lot because I feel like it's just not talked about enough in church, was pornography. Let me tell you something. I, talk, I have conversations with people all the time. The reason I do about this subject is because statistically, 8 out of 10 people in this room regularly look at pornography. And most of the time, those 8 out of 10 people that are looking at pornography have no idea that they have a problem. Because they've never tried to quit. Let me challenge you today. I don't need hands up, and I don't need to talk to you about it unless you want to. Don't want hands up. But if you are currently using pornography once a month, once a week, once a day, once an hour, whatever that looks like, try to stop. Try to quit. Say, you know what? I'm going to take a week off. See how that goes for you. If there's a challenge there, you've got a problem. And I'm just sharing it with you because I love you. But for me, I couldn't quit. It started out, it was something I did when I was younger. It was introduced to me. And then it was magazines in the house. And then the internet came along. And it was unbridled access all the time. Mom dad didn't know. Because mom didn't, dad didn't know what mom dad didn't know. We didn't know that you could do, do that kind of stuff on the internet. We thought it was chat rooms. It was AOL and 56K modems. You know what I'm saying. I don't think that was a good impersonation at all. But it's the best I got. But y'all knew what I meant. Well, most of you. Some of your teenagers are like, modem? What the modem? I don't understand. Did it have Wi-Fi? No. Ha. But for, can I get human for, with you for a moment? Just take it to a human level to help you understand? Because I was a kid who was different. I was often rejected. I was often made fun of. And I was often, often bullied. But you know what porn never did? Porn never rejected me. Porn never said no. Never did. It was never disgusted with my body. It was always welcoming. It was faithful. It was always available. It was always something new and exciting to look at. See, that's kind of gross. I'm just being honest. You can understand the appeal. I didn't realize the noose was getting tighter and tighter on me until I, I got into a godly marriage and there were some issues. There were some issues. It affected me. And I wanted to stop, but I couldn't stop. I had this habit. I had a neurological pathway that I had walked down so many times that I was so entrenched in this that if I didn't look at pornography on a regular basis, my body would shake as if I was a drug addict. Science, we now know that it touches a part in your brain that activates the same part the drugs touches. We know that now. I ain't talk all day about this. I'm not going to. I got a message to do right here. But understand, it affected me, and I couldn't quit. What do you do when you can't quit? What do you do when you know something's wrong? You're like, man, I, I don't know how to get away from this because I, I, I prayed. I asked God to forgive me, but there's more, and the Bible tells you that there's more. I had a responsibility in it that I was not playing. I was praying and asking God. I was doing something spiritual but was not doing the things that I needed to personally to become victorious. It's like praying and asking God to help me win the lottery, but never buying a ticket. Right? I'm not condoning buying, paying, playing the lottery. I'm just saying. It's like that. <coughs> In the end, I prayed and asked God to take me out of this world because I felt like my exit from this world was the only solution because I didn't want to continue dishonoring him. Some of you are there right now. Some of you can't stop overeating you. Some of you can't stop overspending. Your porch, every time there's an Amazon package on it, reflects the shame of your issue. Now I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having packages on your porch. Don't misunderstand me. I'm saying if you know you've got an overspending problem. Some of you have an issue with with smoking, with drinking, popping prescription pills. You don't know how to stop. Some of you are like me. You're stuck in a lust-filled world of porn like me. Some of you are trapped in the wrong kind of relationships, and you don't know how to get out. People constantly mistreat you. It's toxic at every turn. What do I do? Sin promises, satisfaction at the cost of disobedience to God and eventual pain to you. And that's what you're experiencing. So what do you do when you know it's wrong? What do you do when you can't get out of it? Well, there's good news. (laughs) I love good news. Like the woman caught in adultery, there's grace available for you. One of the most beautiful graces that is on display for us is found in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It simply says this, God is faithful. I can hang out there all day long. Those kind of statements about him make me fall to my knees more often than I can tell you. Because God is faithful, even when I'm not, even when you're not. While we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. That's who our God is, and he's faithful. He's faithful. 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 100%. That's his track record. That's the God we serve. He's faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. It means there's there's no temptation that you're going to experience that you can't bear up underneath. Otherwise, that would be crushing to us. No, God's not going to let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But watch this. There's a role you have to play. He says, but when you are tempted also provide a way out so that you can endure it how many of y'all know that an exit door on an airplane is only as good as the person who decides to use it should the plane be going down and those those flight attendants are faithful every flight i've ever been on can i have your attention please you'll notice that there are exits here and the lane will light up and there'll be exits here it'll be real easy for you to find them please take time now to identify the exits closest to you. Listen, friends, the stuff that you're tempted by is stuff that's common. Start looking for your exit points and decide when I'm in that situation, when the ship starts going down, this thing is crashing and burning, I'm gonna use an exit. Those exits aren't always comfortable to use, not fun. But let me tell you something. I'd rather take the exit than head into Temptation City and lose everything. God will provide a way out. So the prayer becomes, God, show me. Show me my exit points. Give me wisdom. And sometimes as you pray through that, you're going to falter a little bit like I did as I tried to get free from pornography. You're going to falter a little bit, and then you're going to go say, okay, God, I messed up. Give me wisdom to know how, to, how I got here so that I don't do this again, so that I close the doors. And the person that you're confessing that sin to is going to ask you that same question. How did you get here so that we don't get here again? What accountability do you need? See, that's one of the exit strategies, by the way. Some accountability. That's not fun, but you need it. Confession to God and to others. You need prayer. Prayer. We need repentance. These are exits. Repentance is literally a restructuring of your life and turning another way. Forgiveness. We need to remove some things from our lives. We need to change our phone numbers. We need to turn off that social media. Some of you need to leave that job because you've already gone too far with somebody that you work with. And you need to leave that job. Some of you... You need to step out of a social circle that you're in. Some of you need to turn that television off, get it out of your bedroom. It's one of the things I needed to do. Some of you need accountability on all your digital stuff. My wife literally gets screenshots of everything I'm looking at on my phone and my laptop. Say, aren't you scared? No, I'm in a loving relationship. I'm being honest, being open. I'm free. And if you're celebrating my freedom, that's awesome. Thank you for that. But what I have I want for you. I want you to breathe. I want you to be free. I want you to understand that every temptation that comes your way will lead you to brokenness if you embrace it and walk out that sin. Or you can allow every temptation as an opportunity or an invitation to depend on Jesus. Show me the way out. I know you're faithful and in this moment I need an exit plan because trying to stay in this ship that's crashing, it ain't working for me anymore. I need to know the exit strategy. And if you'll continue to do that, if you'll continue to go now and leave your life of sin, I believe you'll discover there was never any happiness in any of that stuff anyway because he's where the joy is. Let's pray. God, I've left it all on the field, as they say. I've said everything you've given me to say. I am desperate for our people to experience the full freedom that Jesus paid for each of us to have. I am desperate for us to be free from the consequences Of sin in our lives, of giving in to temptation, to being tripped up by it time and time again. I am desperate for those that feel no hope who, like me, have called out, God, I cannot do this on my own. I am desperate for them to see their exits. I am desperate for them to be bold and to act, to go now and leave their life of sin to embrace being set apart for your plans, for your purposes. God, I pray that you break every every bit of addiction in this place, no matter what it is to. I pray that hope would rise in each of our hearts. I pray, God, that you would help each of us be a safe place where others are able to be vulnerable and we would refuse to participate in shame culture. That we, like Jesus, would simply look to be a place of grace and truth. To lovingly call people to go now and be free to leave our lives of sin. God, help us. We're in a world that is filled with so much misinformation and fake news about what you've said. They've tried to paint you like you're mean, that you're cruel, that you hate us. God, help us to have clarity today. That all that you have for us is because you are a good and loving father and that we can trust you. <laughs> Somebody's going to get free today, I can just tell you. Somebody's going to get free today. Lord, I just continue to pray for everybody in this room, those listening on the podcast or watching the broadcast today. I'm speaking to those of you that don't have a relationship with Jesus yet. You've still been walking underneath your own strength, doing your own thing. I'm here to tell you God is not mad at you. God is not surprised. God knows everything. He knows what you did last night. He's not mad at you. He loves you. And he's willing to give you a start over. He wants to be in your life. He wants you to know him, and he wants you to experience the full freedom Jesus paid for you to have. But if you want to begin that journey, or maybe even for some of you it's to return to that journey, Christians, you ought to be praying right now. This is a moment of decision. Nobody moving around. If you're ready to begin or rejoin that journey, I'm going to pray for you. We're all going to pray together, and I'm going to ask you to pray these words. They're not magic, but I understand praying to God the first time, it's a little, it's like, what do I say? What do I do? I'm going to give you the words. I'm going to make it easy. But if you're going to pray pray that prayer and mean it from your heart today, today's decision time. It's go time. It's time to go now. If you're ready to pray that prayer, would you just encourage me by lifting your hand up and saying, that's me today, Aaron. I'm making that choice. I'm going to come back. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for those hands. Thank you. Thank you. You can put your hands down now. Thank you. My goodness. People, there, there are six or seven people in this room today. Just by looking around the room, that are making decisions. Praise God for that. Praise God, everybody. Let's pray together. Say, Jesus, I need you. Forgive me of my sins. For doing things my way. Today I surrender. I'm gonna do things your way. So teach me. Teach me your ways. Fill me with your spirit to empower me to live for you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer today, all of heaven is celebrating this church. Come on, guys. Let's celebrate with them, too.
1: Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. We hope it has given you hope and helped you know God a little bit more. The goal of this podcast is to reach beyond our walls and connect with people far from God. If you'd like to join us in doing that, there are several ways for you to get involved.